Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and thanks for joining me today on A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College and the editor for A Better Peace. We've brought you a couple episodes in the past on technology, artificial intelligence, and the future of warfare, and you can expect a few more in the future. And you can, of course, find more content in our essays on War Room. Today, we're going to take another look at the topic, and I'm here with three military officers who have been looking at the challenges and opportunities for the military that are presented by artificial intelligence. I'm thinking specifically about how the DoD might adapt and learn lessons from the private sector. I'm joined in the studio today by Lieutenant Colonel Tom Sparr, who's an Army Intel officer. Hello. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Chase, who's a Marine Intel officer. Hello. And Colonel Dre Abadie, who is an Army Signal officer. Hello, world. All right. So these are Army War College students uh, who are part of the class of 2019. So by the time this airs, they will have been graduated uh, and off to other, other jobs. But we're happy to have them here today. As we often do, we're going to start with a definitional question. So, Dre, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk to us a little bit about what is AI and how you sort of defined it for your specific project. Yeah, thanks, Jackie. So, I think I'd preface my answer with the fact that most of the organizations, both DOD and commercial that we surveyed, uh, consider there to be a lack of consistency when it comes to AI terminology and definitions. But For the sake of our research, what we started with was the DARPA uh, evolutionary stages of AI, where DARPA uses components of intelligence, perceiving, learning, abstracting, reasoning, to talk about how AI technologies progress. Um, and, And as we started getting into that, we used that to frame our initial touch points. What I think we realized was with the short duration of the research, we really aren't gonna probably make a technical uh, contribution, or at least we didn't feel that way. Um, so what we did is we kind of changed the way we looked at AI in terms of a definition, and we went with what is the AI purposed for? And then in that manner, AI could be purposed for to automate processes. Uh, AI could be used to provide analytical insights. Um, a lot of the desires for AI to be used to uh, augment decisions and augment leaders as they're in that OODA loop, if you will. Uh, but then the final piece uh, is autonomy, and that seems to be the, the evolutionary desire is to reach some point where AI can act on its own. Unfortunately, that also provides visions of Skynet and all the things that go wrong. Mm-hmm. But we were really looking at those purposes to see how the integration of AI could impact an organization. Okay, so thinking really about the organizational implications rather than necessarily the technical side, which we've got lots of other people who are working right. years and years and years and on And we that. clearly are not them. Not so. not them. Um, all right, so Tom, tell us a little bit more about the the question mm-hmm. that your group was was after. What were you trying to accomplish? Sure, I, I will. But first, I want to I tip my hat to the rest of our, our group here. And just, we're all a part of the Carlisle Scholars Program here. So what we've been able to do is for the last couple of months of our War College experience, focus on uh, on topics that are important to the Army. And, and our group, uh, or the three of us here, you know, an Army and a Marine Corps Intel 
officer. We also have an Air Force Intel officer, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Derek Beck, who's not with us today, and then another Army Intelligence officer, uh, Colonel Paul O. Um, so there's four Intel officers in this group, which which gives us a natural bias towards intelligence and. As Dre mentioned, AI can be huge and overwhelming. It includes a lot of things. So we try to scope the project a bit. Um, and because we're Intel heavy, you know, Intel was the original focus. But what we found was most of our lessons really expand across command and control at large. So most of the things we learned and our conclusions uh, really spanned. And the way we, way we did this was first we went out and we surveyed a number of government organizations uh, that are employing AI or are transitioning to AI. So we, we talked to some national agencies, the NGA and CAA we talked to. We talked to the Army Intelligence and Security Command. We talked to the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, the guys that do Task Force Maven. We went to a few universities, talked to Lincoln Labs up at MIT and some of the professors there and also then to Carnegie Mellon. We second step, once we kind of established that baseline, um, and we also learned that a lot of them aren't talking to each other, so we thought we could help, help the, the, the DOD and national agencies talk to each other. We then went and we surveyed commercial organizations, and we looked at fields specifically that were not tech-based. In other words, we, we didn't we, – organizations that existed before the Internet, right? So specifically, we looked at banks. Uh, we looked at insurance companies, um, and we also looked at hospitals. And so we could see how they transitioned versus like an Amazon or a Netflix who exist because of the Internet, came, came after the Internet. We also – we did talk to some IBMs and some Amazons, particularly in lessons, but our really focus was those uh, older companies that, that then, then transitioned. Um, so that's the that's the general scope of the of the of the project. And what kind of things were you talking to them about? What were the mm. questions that you were asking? So the the biggest ones were how did how did you have to adapt? How did you have to change your business model? How did it affect your your workforce? Um, and we eventually we binned our findings and our conclusions into six general things here. Uh, first was cultural. Right? There was a cultural adaptation that has to happen inside of these organizations. Second is dealing with data and infrastructure. How do you have to adapt what we call an, their ecosystem right? to make this work, to make AI work? You have to really become data-enabled, and you have to have the computing power um, and the environment for it to work. How did you organize yourself? Um, how did you train both your new employees you were bringing in and the older employees that have been around for a while and your leaders because leaders really have to understand these capabilities in, in order for them uh, to thrive. And then finally is, is talent management. How do you recruit the right people? And then how do you retain them? Uh, which is a, which is an issue, um, you know, for, for the military. And one we'll talk more about, uh, but, a, but a brief preview, you know, uh, at the soldier and leader level, one of our conclusions is, if we want, at the leader level, if we want AI to thrive, we have to have leaders who understand it and embrace it. So many of the companies have senior information or senior data officers in the top ranks now, like mm -hmm. the four stars of the military. Sure. So let's take each of those sort of six ideas, mm -hmm. um, maybe in turn, and we'll, we'll sort mm -hmm. of go in the, in the order that you, that you name them. But um, Chris, maybe you can talk a little bit more about what aspects of military culture in, in particular might need to change or adapt to this new, um, new environment, this new world in which artificial intelligence is part of what we do. Sure. So we, we came across a culture as a, a significant finding from the different commercials, uh, from the commercial sectors that we visited, uh, because they have, there are many companies that had to adapt 
artificial intelligence to continue to uh, succeed as a business and make money. Um, and it's, they're dealing with different sets of um, problems and issues that a military would have to face. So from the commercial aspect, what we, we found was that there are two sort of uh, categories that a commercial industry uh, groups artificial intelligence in. One is the business-facing side, and the other is the technical-facing side. So you think of it as in a front office and back office, um, the folks doing operations or sales or whatever, the business-facing side. And then on the technical aspect or administrative side of things, you find more um, corporations or businesses have adapted artificial intelligence there um, because it allows them to process paperwork faster and who can argue with that that makes things speed things up for their business um, but when it comes to the business side of industry um, there are a lot of questions they're asking themselves right now um, and and they have some of them are still working sorting through this and how much of do they want artificial intelligence to be on the front end of what they're doing a good example of that is on the uh, in the insurance side where the uh, industry is looking at using artificial intelligence and in dealing with customers. And one thing they're asking themselves is, do customers actually want to talk to a real person, or can we use a chatbot to assist in their, um, in their purchase of a, of a product uh, or a policy? So there are, fun, there are things on the business side that are still being sorted out. Um, and I think that was something that we found as we went out and talked with the different industries. And Chris, if I, Chris tells it. A great story about do the doctors is one of my favorite ones. And oh, yeah. His dad's a doctor, right? And he doesn't like to use a cell phone, right? So how do you get a doctor for, for in hospitals to collect the data? You have to film surgeries. Doctors don't generally like, especially old doctors, don't necessarily want their stuff filmed. How do you overcome that um, culture? And it adapts, I think, well to the, to the military about some of our senior commanders who like only analog things and don't trust necessarily the technology. Um, that is there. Um, so, and culture spreads a lot of ways. I mean, even into the, the ranks, like I remember there's a cultural problem with Intel officers in that we want all our data to ourselves and we don't want to give it up and rely on somebody that's remote through a cloud-based system. So we, we hunker around these giant databases with us everywhere and they never work very well. And we have to overcome that cultural um, challenge of, of wanting to keep everything local and, and learn to trust the technology and the cloud-based technology that is the, really the future in artificial intelligence. I think a good uh, another good example for as it applies to the military is you think of it as the OODA loop um, that's the observe or orient, observe, decide, and act. Um, and we are we are okay with the observe and orient uh, for, for artificial intelligence, I think, uh, assisting with that. But when it comes to deciding and acting, that's the hard question that they, I don't think us as the United States military is ready to uh, incorporate artificial mm -hmm. intelligence into. So can artificial intelligence pull a trigger? Do we want it to? Um, can it make a decision about life or death? And so that's the, that's that, um, that's the part of the military that we have yet to, to face other uh, countries or adversaries might view it through a different right. lens, but uh, but I don't think we're there. On par with that, the commercial industry, they're not, they, that's their business side of things, and they're okay with that. And they're figuring out how to, to on that front end, to uh, to use AI to help support and build their business. The good ones are, right. Yeah. And still figuring yeah. out what's the role of humans in right. all of this, and what's the relationship between the, the human and the 
the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you've you've sort of both talked about is the importance of data, and I think this was another one of your one of your categories. Sometimes um, we've heard it said that maybe data is like the new oil, right? Which suggests that it's highly um, it's a requirement, right? It is sort of maybe wealth generating. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that comparison and what the challenges the military faces with data are? Yeah, so, I mean, another way to look at it is data is the fuel of artificial intelligence technologies. Um, but I would say that you probably need to frame your interpretation of data in, in two different manners. The first is how do we use data to associate the learning process where we, we have an artificial intelligence technology and we need to train it before we actually employ it into the real world. And that's where we get into the portions of the more data, the better. Uh, the large data sets get to the platitude of deep learning and some of the things that you've probably seen on the internet. But the second side of it is once that artificial intelligence technology is ready to be deployed and it, it's in an operational environment, it's the data that it processes in order to perform the function uh, that it's purposed for. And that's where we get into the probably one of the biggest challenges I think the military has right now in terms of uh, I think we had more than one person say the DOD is swimming in technology but drowning in data. And it's a matter of having the processes in place, the guidance in place for us to curate data in a manner that we can condition it to be processed through these artificial intelligence technologies. But to Tom's point earlier, you know, making fun of Intel officers always wanting it for themselves, whatever step forward we go with how we curate data and and how we set some level of standards for uniformity it'll allow us to leverage those data sets across the entire enterprise. And that's what actually needs to happen. It needs to have an ability for artificial technologies in a way to be modular. So all the data that the DOD is generating through sensors and a number of technologies can be processed not just by a singular organization, but by multiple organizations. If I could add to that, the the other question that goes along is who and where is the data curated? A challenge we have is at the tactical level, and Intel analysts spend like 90% of their time trying to make, read the data, have their system read the data, get the data, instead of doing analysis of the data. Uh, so what we observed in some of the corporations and some of the special operations units we talked to, they're doing that centrally in the cloud, and then the units that are more pushed forward are hitting that that already curated data to leverage it for their purposes. Um, so it takes the onus off of them. I want my analysts not messing with the data, but being able to interpret the other side of it after it's gone through the algorithm and already able to, to, to tell their commander something and do some predictive analysis. And I'll tell you, the key yeah. technique that was shared with us is to get away from the behavior we have of sharing data sets. And now I'm moving this large data set from point A to point B, which is a, a huge security concern. What's more effective is allowing the analyst to just share his query. So he's sending the question he has to a remote data set, and then he's receiving the answer. And, and the reason I think that technique needs to be a little more fully embraced is because in our tactical environment, when we deploy soldiers in harm's way, generally the communication systems that support them do not have the robust capability that we find in our everyday environments. And the idea of just sending a query is a much smaller question versus right. attempting to share yeah. an entire data set into some of these austere locations. This is really important because the advantage the commercial sector has over us is everybody's got a cell phone and they are okay sharing their data for the most part. 
whereas we're in a denied environment where the enemy is trying to not share their data and, in fact, potentially deceive us by giving us bad data. And they're also trying to break our network. You know, our network is not reliable. Um, but what we want to we get into that mode of understanding. We can learn from the commercial sector in that when we're not connected, that's okay temporarily, right? It's like putting your phone on airplane mode. What happens when you, when you get off the airplane you turn it back on, you get all that message traffic, and you're caught up. So you don't need to constantly be connected. In fact, at times you want to turn off your connection because it becomes a vulnerability as the enemy can intercept it. We just have to culturally get to that. I think so we've we've crossed over, right, culture and data. We've talked mm-hmm. a little bit about organizations as well. We've talked about people, right, who and, and where and how many and what kinds. And so that sort of gets us to the to the next set of set of bins of, of questions um, when you think about in, in a military context who and how many and what kind and what do they need to know what are some of the questions that the military has to answer when it comes to AI as far as, as who we need well it's you know one of the two is one of the civilian companies and again one of the special operations people use the term of mashing up the right people in teams and it's going to require data analysts people that are experts on data and it can't just you can't just hire one data scientist and he's going to do it all. You know, there's a guy that's going to be understanding the data, curating the data, exploring new data sources. There's a second team guy or team that is writing the algorithm and modifying the algorithm then to the specific problem set you have. And then there's you know what you could call the translator or the manager, the guy that's making sense of what's coming out of the black box where the algorithm is processing the data and applying it to the mission and, and to explaining it to his boss or, or his commander. So you need those kind of people on these teams working together. And like I mentioned earlier, I generally think they're at this point at the upper echelon where all the data is fed into some kind of cloud-based system. You will need some data people at the lower echelon just because it, it, each problem set's different. Like, for instance, a language recognition tool in Iraq ain't going to work in Afghanistan. Right, just like in a commercial sector, an insurance company that gets a call from an angry New Yorker who just got re-rented and is yelling into his phone with a heavy New York accent and, and horns beeping in the back is a lot different than a Georgia country boy that just hit his his neighbor's cat and wants to know if his insurance company is going to be able to to pay for that. And I'm sorry, Jackie, I mentioned cats, and I know that's a sensitive okay. a sensitive topic for you, but. Um, <laughs> So there's, they're, they're generally consolidated, but some have to be down, and they have to have analysts incorporated with them that understand it as well. And I think the mm-hmm. – let me chime in on that too. Yeah. The, the, what, what we, in terms of people, what we, what we came across from the commercial industry was that um, the, the age groups of people that were, whether it's data scientists or people writing algorithms or whatever, were an older set of, of people, maybe people in their 30s. Um, and, and so that's a fundamental thing the military has to think through because what are we trying to recruit are 18 year olds. And so there's a big Delta between 18 year olds and someone who's been out there actually had the opportunity and experience to, to gain the training and education to get to a level to where then they're hired to build an algorithm. I mean, it's interesting. We think about sort of the digital environment as being one that is made for young people. Um, but there is something to be said for experience yeah, and education and training, like you said. Kind of and yeah. the, the yeah. oldest millennials are now, right. like, they're lieutenant colonels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're 38, 39 years old um, who have been sort of grown up in this digital right. um, in this digital environment. But, but on that point, Jackie, so we talk about the value of experience. I think 
in my opinion, a word of caution is there's a lot of hype around artificial intelligence and it's going to replace portions of the workforce and these grand efficiencies and cost savings. And I think we have to be really careful at the level of immaturity right now, the domain experts, and I don't mean the AI domain, I mean the core business processes that you've automated. Now you're leveraging data analytics to identify trends. And now you're doing decision augmentation with this artificial intelligence. You need to retain those domain experts who actually fully understand the process that is in the underlying piece. I mean, Tom used the term black box and black box is a bad thing because we don't understand what's in it. You know, and if we outsource a lot of our development of AI, we become a slave to proprietary standards, et cetera. So the concept of explainable AI is really important where that domain expert, they might not be managing the exact process anymore, but now they're your auditor. Now they're the ones that can make sense out of the output if your results start to shift a little bit or they drift away from what is expected. Um, and I, I think, especially on the Intel side, there's some people that are just wicked smart in terms of what they do. And though the machine now is doing it faster, it might not necessarily be doing it better. Dre hit on a sensitive topic for me because there's the, the inclination to, to cut the tail, right, to make more tooth. We always want to do that in the military. And some people think AI is immediately going to be able to cut your signal in your Intel shops, right, and get more shooters. And that's, that's, that's great. But I would say not really in the short term. It's going to change the nature of the workforce a little bit, but it's not going to cut them. And a quick story that we came across, and we talked to one of the agencies that is absolutely swimming in data, and they told us, hey, at this point, we can only get to 10 to 15% of our data, and it keeps growing, right, as the technology gets better. What AI will enable our analysts to do is to increase that percentage, right? So we want to be able to get through 75% of our data by using augmentation tools, you know, a tool that can go through thousands of files and identify for an analyst which one he should look for, right? And then like, like you use Pandora, the analyst will give him a thumbs up on it and that will in turn train the, the algorithm to, to be more uh, perceptive to what he wants. Give me and more better. of this. Yeah, he's getting better at it, right? If you like this, you'll like this, like you see with, you know, on Netflix. And I think that's mm -hmm. what senior leaders need to hear and understand more because there, there are those out there that will hear AI and fear that it is removing maybe some of their workforce. If an, a commander of an intelligence unit says, well, I'd, I don't want to adapt to that because then it might, um, they, they might shorten my battalion's numbers of people because now I'm able to automate. No, mm -hmm. actually, no, it's, it's, we're, 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 we're acquiring more data. And mm -hmm. so there's not a fear to be had that your manpower will be reduced because you're incorporating. Skill sets may have to change. Right. Which is which is kind of the natural part of our world, right, in the commercial and military sector. Uh, sometimes your skill set has to change. Mm -hmm. you know? So when we think about skill sets and we think about who this workforce looks like, um, is can the military compete with mm -hmm. the civilian sector to recruit and retain the talent that's required? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, re it's a real challenge, I'll, I'll tell you that. And it's it's... What's different about AI when you compare it to, say, past technologies that the military may have had the monopoly on, like a jet-based technology or missile development, AI, I mean, a kid that's excellent you know, at data science can make a lot more money outside the military and doesn't have to meet the physical standards of the military. So there is. So how do we, how do we get them to join the military? We do, we do have some advantages. One, 
I say we don't have to recruit the best and the highly trained because one thing our military does is it historically it gives opportunity, right, to a very talented kid that may have not had that opportunity, right, for, for a great education or just needs the discipline that the Army can give him in order to excel. That's the kind of kid we want to we recruit. Um, secondly, our mission is great. Right? It's pretty easy to sell to an 18-year-old, hey, do you want to go help these guys sell insurance or do you want to come kill terrorists right? or, or maybe help, uh, help save kids? Right? Our mission is, is just, it's just a lot sexier than, than selling insurance or, or something else like that. Um, and then you know, the third thing that jumps to my mind is why do, what I love about the military is most of the people are there because they're a certain sense of patriotism. They want to serve. They want to give something back. And I think we can, we can leverage, um, leverage that as well. Um, but what's, what's important though is once we get them is to, to invest in them. And that's where it comes back to the management understanding. We're going to have to send them to NSA for a two-week course on data management. We're going to have to let them do an internship with Amazon right, for a month and bring that back because they're going to be ahead of us most likely in this. And a, you know, a great comparison I think about is how we train our medics, especially our special ops. Where do we put them? Right? We put them in trauma centers and hospitals because that's the best place to learn. We have to kind of approach it with that mentality to, to maintain and train these guys. And, and I want to chime in on the training part too because of as you, as you, as you mentioned the, the the getting getting the folks um, to train the units don't want to let let them go and leave for a year or so. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that we have to think through is are there going to be Maybe we can adapt programs that will allow people to leave for longer periods of time, but coming back with um, huge skill sets. Um, I mean, there are a few folks out there maybe working at Google with the military and uh, and what comes of that down the road. Um, hopefully that will put our put the military in a better position to think through some of these AI problems, but maybe more of that. Um, you know, someone that leaves the military mm-hmm. and decides they want to come back five years later. Um, generally, in the past, we've we've been resistant to people that have left for that long. But maybe in, during those five years, they've they've become, you know, expert data scientists for a corporation mm-hmm. or something. And, and there is a, there's one there's one part I want to I want to highlight from one of our from our trip up to MIT. There was definitely a, a, a friction point that was highlighted to us where um, industry is looking at education um, and saying you are the guys that are going to supposed to bring folks into our workforce having had familiarization with artificial intelligence and and building algorithms and the education is is saying that's not our job it's your job to train them once they get out into the industry and so there's that friction who who is responsible for 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 advancing exactly preparing the workforce because the the fundamental question that we heard from that trip to the Mm c-sale mit was um you know they they don't want to leave workforce behind but yet they want to prepare them. So where is that point? And I think you can imagine how this question gets translated to military environments too. Um, when we think about the sort of near-term future, what do we think, how would we, how would we know if we've made progress or are becoming maybe more successful in managing the AI challenges and opportunities that you see in front of us, organizationally speaking? What does mm-hmm. success look like? I'll just say one, and and unfortunately, it's a little more conceptual than I think you're getting at. But I will say the ability for us to begin to take these principles of this technology and integrate it in our concepts for future warfare, like multi-domain operations, and and not be afraid to say multi-domain operations has some requirements that are most likely only going to be satisfied by artificial technologies. 
um, artificial intelligence technology, excuse me, but it's taken that leap because sometimes we hesitate from putting technologies in our future concepts because if they lack the maturity, now you look like the person who mm-hmm. claimed something was going to happen and it doesn't materialize. Uh, but I, I think there's true potential uh, if the right people are, are broadening their, their aperture for how they think about future warfare to talk about this in, in a manner that we should integrate in our concepts, not just mm-hmm. hypothesize and write mm-hmm. fictional stories. So some mm-hmm. conceptual boldness, intellectual boldness on one count. What else? Yeah, I mean, the Chinese are doing, just to comment on the Chinese are doing that, right? They're, they're investing in AI. And they're saying, in fact, they're saying we're going to cut whole echelons. We're going to cut the division echelon and enable the core with AI, C2, and Intel to do it. Um, but that's just chopping on, on the back of DeRay there. To, to me, and I bring a tactical intel officer perspective, um, if in you know five to ten years our, our battalions and brigades um, are, are fully hitting a cloud and not having to lug around huge databases – and manage data themselves that they can leverage stuff that's already processed at the higher echelon so that they can spend 90% of their time doing predictive analysis, doing what they're, they're supposed to do as analysts, as, as analysis and not have to have to be the one messing with, with the data or make trying to make a, a giant server work in a low bandwidth uh, environment. That, that to me is, is success in, in a couple of years. Chris, what about you? I think the success will be the growing the um, the force for data scientists and seeing them actually mm-hmm. down at un- units and the, you know it, whether it's at division you know yeah. a level but data scientists folks that can um, uh, build the algorithms and the managers of those of, of those folks um, I think they I think they need to be pushed down to you know at least division level and um, so you building the force I think is what uh, will 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 ensure that we. We stay current, and then also um, staying more, t- uh, stay tied in with the commercial industry. That yeah, that's, that's it has to happen. Um, they certainly have been advancing things um, to where you know obviously, obviously here we are. You know, uh, senior officers we're learning a lot from that. So we we, we see the um, the opportunity and advantage of continuing to stay tied in with them to see what advances are occurring. Great. So I think we've gotten some really fantastic insight from your from your research. Thanks for coming and sharing it with us on War Room. I've learned a lot, and I think we've got some things to look for and to think about as we move forward. Okay. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you so Appreciate much, Jackie. It. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Jackie. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.